All right, we're going to gather back together. People with uh, dropping off their kids are going to find their way back this direction. Good to be together this morning. Uh, great uh, to be together as God's family, um, worshiping the reality of Christ and what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will continue to do in the lives of us in this city and beyond. Amen. Um, if you've missed any of the weeks, uh, the last several weeks, I would encourage you to go online to our website, which is uh, redemptiongreely.org, and um, at the top you can select sermons and listen to any of the sermon series out of the book of Acts up to this point, besides the rare occasions of the sermons that didn't get recorded because of some technical difficulty. Sadly, those are usually Pat sermons. I don't really know why that is. I'm sorry. If, it, if you could delete a sermon, it would be my sermons, not Pat's sermons. And so, um, anyway, I know that you'll be served by that. Um, if you've missed, uh, uh, trust that you'll be served and ministered to that as, as God's Word is an endless well and, and good for our soul. As we've shared over the last um, uh, several months, if you remember and you recall, we kicked off this sermon series in Acts back in September of 2021. And we've entitled that sermon series, Your Kingdom Come. Is it possible that we have that slide, Josh? Boom. Your Kingdom Come. And that kingdom has come because the king came. And with him and through him and his empowered spirit, God is establishing territory for his eternal kingdom, territory that is plotted out by transferring individuals from the kingdom of darkness and transferring them into the kingdom of the beloved son, his son, Jesus. As individuals have responded to the message of the gospel with repentance and faith, they are now seen as friends and not enemies. Not as opponents, but proponents of the gospel. Not as slaves, but as heirs of God's forever family. But it is a kingdom that is growing in different ways than we might anticipate. Different ways than we might even desire at times if we're honest with each other. This colossal undertaking of God to build his kingdom, his way, requires faith in his strategy and the means to bring it about, and ultimately faith in his character. Because it often looks different. The story of conquering, redeeming, reconcile, sanctifying his people, his kingdom, is unique and not always intuitive to you and I, isn't it? But I would submit that it is always best, nonetheless. Who would have thought that God's kingdom would come through such stories as we have encountered in Acts thus far? This morning is yet another example of God building his kingdom in unexpected ways in Acts chapter 22. As Paul is brought before the Sanhedrin and faces great opposition, but to be clear, God is ever busy working. 
If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them with me to Acts chapter 22, starting in verse uh, 22. And as you get there, the title for this morning's sermon is Paul's Trial and the Ultimate Judge. Paul's Trial and the Ultimate Judge. And as you get there, I want to take a step back and remind us of where we have been thus far as we pick up in verse 22, and then we're going to make some observations. Last week, Pastor Pat walked us through the beginning of Acts 22, right? We remember Paul is resolved to go towards Jerusalem, and he shows up there, and not there long after. He finds his life being threatened by the Jews in the temple as they stir up a riot to overtake him. Romans intervene and more than likely save Paul's life as they capture him. They want to get the bottom of the matter of what is going on, and so they begin to question the individuals, but really get nowhere. Paul tries to speak to the people, right, which Pastor Pat talked about last week, shaping and sharing the testimony of what God has done in the life of Paul, but they get enraged. And to keep the peace, but continue to question Paul, they take him into the barracks, which is where we find ourselves this morning in Acts chapter 22, verse 22. So let's follow along as I read the first several verses, and then we'll stop and make a couple observations. Acts 22, verse 22. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging, to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips... Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and he said, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. In short, the crowd listens to Paul, at least at first. But when Paul communicates his calling to go to the Gentiles, they become belligerent, throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, and they cry away with him from the earth, verse 22. Similar verbiage was used, if you remember, with a man named Jesus. Seeing all of this, but not fully understanding, verse 24, the Roman tribune, commissioned with keeping peace and ordered, ordered Paul to be taken to the barracks to be examined by flogging. It's very likely that Paul addressed this um, 
uh, Jewish crowd through the language of Aramaic and not in Greek. So it's possible, if not likely, that the Roman officers who were overseeing and uh, trying to perceive and understand could not discern the cause for all this hostility. And in order to get to the truth, the Romans took Paul to a place called Gabbatha. It's a stone pavement inside the fortress that also served as a central courtyard where Paul would be stretched out on the whipping frame and where a skilled technician would use a whip with a wooden handle and from that wooden handle would have many leather straps attached to it and at the end of those straps would be pieces of metal and bone. It was a gruesome process that Rome kept for non-citizens and slaves to pull out the truth of the matter. Commentators speculate that this may have been the very spot that Jesus was beaten and whipped prior to his own crucifixion many years earlier. Knowing what was about to happen, Paul in verse 25 asks, but really makes a statement. Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen? Scared and fearful of the repercussions of inflicting such punishment on a fellow Roman, they question Paul as to his citizenship. Now, there are three primary ways to gain citizenship as a Roman at this time. The first, and holding the most prestige, was that by birth. Your father or your mother was Roman, and therefore you were born into the Roman family. The second was through some prestigious service that you had done for Rome. And as a reward, you were given citizenship. And third, holding the least amount of prestige was that you would buy your citizenship, which is what this tribune did in verse 28. In that same verse, Paul reveals that he is a citizen and that his citizenship was by birth. It's thought that Paul's own father must have been granted this reward for service to Rome and acquired this citizenship for his children as well. And we don't know if Paul was able to prove his citizenship through some documentation, maybe something he had on his person, or if the Roman officers believed it best to err on the side of caution and believe Paul. Regardless, verse 29, we are told that in fear they withdrew from him. Unable to get to the bottom of this riot and this civil unrest, the Roman tribune has no other option but to summon the Jewish Sanhedrin to help resolve order, restore order, which is where we continue our journey through the book of Acts, starting in verse 30. Grab your Bibles and read along with me. Starting in verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought him 
uh, brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisee. It is respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisee party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and, bringing, and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So Paul is ordered by Rome. He's brought before the Sanhedrin, a group of Jewish leaders who governed Jewish life and observance to the law. And verse 1 tells us that Paul looked intently at the council. It's noteworthy that Paul, as he has, communicates in verse 6, was a Pharisee, a, a part of a set inside this Sanhedrin, this council. And he may have even been looking for individuals that he knew from his time, some 20-odd years earlier, as a persecutor of the way. And Paul's opening statement is, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. That statement will continue to be a theme in the book of Acts as well as other places in Paul's letters back to churches that he ministered to. For Paul, this is the primary concern for himself. Has he been obedient to what God has called him to? Consider that with me for a moment. As the stage is being set, we see Paul's intentions his motives, his actions are all being put under scrutiny. There in the temple, when he first gets to Jerusalem, before the mob, and then again here in the Sanhedrin, Paul is being questioned. He's, putting, he's being put on trial, asked to give an account. Why do you do what you do? 
Ironically, it's the very thing that Paul is on trial for is the very same thing that you and I must give an account for one day. Notice that. All of these individuals, be them Roman or Jewish, perceive themselves as having authority. At least enough authority over Paul to question him and to put him on trial, to have him clarify, justify, or give answers to their authority. What's Paul's response in the midst of that? I have lived my life before God in all good conscience. Two questions that I have in relation to that statement is what's Paul's meaning by what he says and why does Paul have that kind of security? We must remember at the heart of this trial, at the heart of the hatred for Paul was their belief that Paul was first and foremost disobeying the law and therefore God and teaching others to do the same. And both of those two things were at odds with their authority. So when Paul says that he has lived before God in good conscience, he's saying that his own internal soul that distinguishes right from wrong, good from evil, is at peace with God and aligns with God. In other words, Paul isn't backpedaling what he's done, what he's said, what he's proclaimed here, there, and over there. In fact, he's doubling down on his testimony, doubling down on his life and what he has done and what he has said and what he taught, and he shares all of that in the context of this particular group of people. I, Paul, have been faithful to God. I've searched my own heart. I have lived all of my life before God's own eyes, and I am at peace with what I have done. Regardless what you the authority, the ones that should know what it is like to walk uprightly before God, say or believe. I have acted obediently to God. That's why Ananias commands those that stood by Paul to strike him in the face. Verse 2. What must have that been like for Paul to speak out against the authority, even the God-given authority like the Sanhedrin? I'm not sure that I can fully relate. You might be able to. Maybe a soft illustration that doesn't quite get us all the way there but might be helpful is a liking this setting to your own life and your walk with the Lord. Who notices your life and your conduct? 
We all have people that watch and perceive what we do. Maybe for you it's close family. Maybe it's your parents, a God-given authority in your life who don't share your convictions, maybe they don't share your beliefs, maybe they are outright vocal against your faith. Maybe it's other family members that aren't put in authority over you by God, but have great influence because they're family. Maybe it's a different type of structure like your boss. Maybe it's co-workers, friends, or your significant other. Who observes your conduct of life and questions it? And what is your and I's response? What's the response of Paul in verse 6? He says, it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection that I am on trial. See, Paul's response in the midst of individuals, even individuals with great authority, isn't to cave to their desires, but instead to hold fast to the confession of faith. Someone, somewhere, once said that believers should live for the audience of one. See, Paul's confidence rested in the reality that the ultimate audience, the ultimate one from whom he would have to give an account was God himself, not man. See, he believed what he penned in 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, that we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us might receive what is due. In summary, God's judgment is the ultimate thing that matters in what we do, say, and how we conduct ourselves in this life. It is the ultimate and final word that carries ultimate and final authority over our lives, no one else's. And we've seen this time and again in the account of Acts, haven't we? Paul's steadfast resolve to consider Christ as greater. It's, he's greater than suffering, greater than persecution, greater than possessions, greater than comfort. That God's view of Paul carries more weight than that of others, even if they hold power and influence over his life. And the question that I keep thinking about every time I see Paul's example is how does Paul endure for the sake of the gospel? For everything that Paul has gone through and everything that he will go through as we finish the book of Acts, how does he endure for the sake of the gospel and the kingdom of God? And then we turn that question like to myself, like how do I endure? How do you endure?
How might you and I grow in living out the reality that God is our ultimate judge, not man? So that we might not be persuaded to listen to the counsel or judgment of others over that of God. Three central truths, I believe, that grounded Paul and can help ground us as we consider the reality that God is the one whom we should please, not man. The first is an understanding of our identity. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then you are one that has placed your faith and trust in the completed work of Christ on the cross, whose perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his glorious, oh glorious resurrection was sufficient for your sins before God. Where you were once a sinner, Standing condemned, rightly deserving the wrath of God because of your rebellion against him. But God, Ephesians chapter 2, but God, being rich in mercy, right? Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, in our sin, he made us alive together with Christ, where we are no longer slaves, Romans chapter 6, but instead we are children of the God Most High, where your identity is defined and it's secured by God alone, and He sees you as precious in His sight. Your identity. The second reality that should help us endure is our worth. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. Romans 8 calls us children, and if children, then you are heirs. And if you have a new identity that's defined and purchased by Christ himself, you're no longer an object of wrath, but instead you are a child. You have the greatest security and the greatest identity, possessing the greatest reward, which is your worth. Which leads us to the third and final thing, which is both of those two realities, your identity and our worth, commission us towards our purpose. Philippians chapter 3 Right, Paul's words, he says, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Earlier on in chapter 3, he says he counts everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Christ. 
First Peter chapter 2 calls us to be living stones, being built into a spiritual house, offering worship unto his glorious name. Matthew 28, Acts chapter 1, right? Call us to go proclaim and make the name great of Jesus with people who do not yet know, with people that do not yet taste and see that he is good, who do not have an identity in Christ, who do not possess the worth of Christ. So how does Paul endure? How does Paul consider the approach of Christ as more weight and worthy than these constant attacks and trials and sufferings that we see in the book of Acts? How does he stand steadfast? I believe that he cultivates in his mind and his heart the reality of his identity, his worth, and his purpose. If we step back and we consider our own lives, what might God have for us with this example of a man like Paul? A life full of many trials, some of which result from our obedience living among a hostile world, which is what Paul experienced often. Paul's being obedient to what God calls him to do. What do you know? The world is against that. Some of the hostility results in Christians folding in the midst of pressure from the watching world. Just last week, I met a guy. Um, we're reading through the book of John, and we're meeting at, in Kersey. Anybody ever eaten at Kersey Pizza? If you've eaten at Kersey Pizza, you know what I'm talking about. Kersey Pizza has amazing pizza, and uh, I like to eat there often. So I, I get out of my truck. You know, I got my cowboy boots on. I've got my Levi jeans. And I've probably got this version of a shirt, just a different color. And I'm walking into Kersey Pizza to meet this guy to read through the book of John. And the, uh, the place is pretty packed. If you've ever been at Kersey Pizza around the lunch hour, um, they draw a lot of people from a lot of different places. And I walk into Kersey Pizza. About half the booths are full. And they're taken up, and I start looking for this guy. And he's not there. And so I'm standing there with my Bible in hand and a notebook. And this feeling of massive insecurity washes over me as I feel like every eye in that restaurant is looking at me standing there with my Bible. Now, regardless if anyone was looking at me or not, that is legitimately how I feel. Every eye on me standing there exposed and judged. Maybe you've had a similar experience. It's not a pleasant one. 
because it picks at your identity. It undermines your worth. And then it begins to question, what in the world are you doing there? It can throw any of those three things into doubt. How is it that a room of complete strangers can stir up such emotion and deter me, a pastor of all people, from my purpose? I would submit it starts with undermining your and I's identity in Christ. Believing who Christ says he is, who you are because of what he has done, and instead, you trade that like I trade that, believing that there are other identities that are better that are more valuable. It can undermine your and I's worth, worth as a child and an heir of God, believing that Christ is the greatest and the truest acceptance that I need. Instead, trading his acceptance for the approval of strangers that I will probably never, ever see in my life again. I would submit to us that Paul's trial and the trials that he has been under and will go through in the rest of Acts is not too unlike the things that happen to us in our lives. Granted, the setting and the formality might be different, but I would propose they are all more common than we might think. For the world is watching our conduct. And our passing judgment as they disapprove. But praise be to God that he has given his amazing spirit all that we might need to lean upon as we engage in the different trials that we will face. May we be people, may we be a church who reminds one another often of the reality that we live for an audience of one, the ultimate judge, who already fully knows you fully knows me, who fully loves you and declared you his because of your identity in Jesus, who's determined your worth, not because of what you have done or have not yet done or the ways that you have or have not held up your end of the deal, but because of what he has done in the face of his son, Jesus. And he is calling you and I towards a great purpose. 
as we hold on to our identity and as we grab hold of our worth and as we consider the reality that we walk before an audience of one, the great and ultimate judge of our souls. That we have a great purpose of making Jesus known in your life, in the lives of other people, all for his great glory and our great joy. Amen.